For a lot of the second half of this year, student debt relief and the student loan crisis have been in national news, and there have been a lot of feelings about it, ranging from joy and happiness that some of this extreme burden to repair what can often amount to predatory lending practices has now been lifted, to the other extreme, which often amounts to a lot of, uh, well, I repaid my debt, why should others be getting a handout? And if you hear my tone of voice while I'm saying that, I think you have an idea of where we stand on that scale. Yes, I liked your tone of voice, sassy pants, because there is so much to this story, actually, you know, beyond the question of handouts versus the student debt crisis, because much like so many other things in the United States, student debt and student loans have also been affected by systemic racism, which is why we're so thrilled to have Brianna Franklin as our guest today to talk about how and why student loan debt disproportionately affects Black women plus her own experience with this as a Dartmouth graduate and why she decided to do something about this in a major way. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Could you please introduce yourself for our listeners? Hi, yes. My name is Bree Franklin, and I am the co-founder, president, and CEO of The Prosperity Project. Okay. So on this podcast, we talk a lot about how our own personal lived experiences have really driven us and empowered us to create this platform. And I really loved learning more about your work because it's also so personally driven. So could you share your origin story with us so that our listeners can understand why this issue is so personal to you? Happily. Well, just want to open by thanking you both for um, allowing me to be part of your community and, you know, talk about my backstory in this space. So the Prosperity Project came to be through a very painstaking and a linear journey. I graduated from college five years ago in 2017 with about $100,000 in student debt principal. And, you know, like millions of other graduates, I was just like very dissociated from it during college and then even in the immediate aftermath because it's designed to be such a lingering effect sort of thing. But once, you know, the amount of that caught up with me two and a half years later and also took a really massive toll on my financial health overall, like it dipped my credit about 150 points blocked me from being able to establish independence earlier on and just really stood in the way of a lot of milestones. And I just remember getting really flustered and just disheartened. I was like, there's no way that this is the best that we can do for young people, you know, especially those who are trying to break generational cycles, advance their education, take advantage of the opportunities we've been told since birth are going to set us up for success. So it really was just a matter of having the right idea and also moving on it in the right time, because I sat with that for about two years before actually launching TPP, which happened in June of 2020. And at that moment, everything was ripe for, you know, Black justice, the uprising of Black Lives Matter that summer really created a prime foundation for being able to put legs to an actual organization devoted to some aspect of that. So just almost instinctively, I was able to put the website and put a name to it, get social media handles lined up and just take off running and haven't looked back since. That's amazing. Actually, speaking of, uh, you know, getting a website and that sort of stuff, 
The Prosperity Project is not spelled how you might hear it, right? Could you talk about both, you know, how you translated this personal experience of coming from like $100,000 in debt, right? Which is a huge, huge number for any of us to contemplate. And how do you take that and translate it into this project? And could you talk about the spelling too? Yeah, of course. So to start with the spelling, it's spelled P-R-O-S-P-A with parentheses around the A-R-I-T-Y. And it's pronounced the standard way. The official reason why it's changed is because it's a mashup of prosperity and parity as in equity. But what actually prompted it was the fact that the regular spelling was taken on Instagram. So I did initially launch it under the E spelling, but then I saw this artist, I think she was based in Iran or somewhere. And I was like, I don't want to ask her to give up her handle. Like she's been at this work for two years. So I was like, what's a creative workaround? And then that ended up just, you know, being like the perfect way to feed two birds with one scone is my environmentalist take on that phrase. And then, sorry, what was the other piece of your question? I want to make sure that I'm actually answering what you asked. Yeah, no. So you came out of school with this large amount of debt. And so when you said, you you know, you, you sat with the idea, you really thought about it and developed it over those two and a half years and launched it at that right time. Like what kinds of things did you take from your personal experience and put into the workings of your project? So, yeah, I remember one of the biggest wake up calls is the fact that I didn't know what my number was. Like it was all speculative because the closest I had gotten to figuring that out was when I called the financial aid office my junior year at Dartmouth. And it was every single term, I kid you not, there was always some ish show with getting me enrolled in the classes because of financial aid, because the loan didn't prorate correctly, because we had to get additional funds on top of what they you know already told us would be the cost for that term. So I remember being advised by one of the agents who was like, you just so you're aware, like you're borrowing on the heavier side. And I mean, I was like, well, what do you want me to do about it? Like y'all charge this crazy high interest and, you know, tuition rate. So I'm just doing what needs to be done in order to stay here. So, I mean, of course I didn't say it all like that, but that was the first time that it really started to come into the forefront of like, oh, this is a serious, serious burden I'm going to have to face when I graduate. Like it's all fun and roses and parties and, you know, social gatherings now with a little bit of studying, but it's like, you know, that's really going to catch up with me. So about a year out of school in summer 2018, I was working technically volunteering because I was not paid, but I was with a startup in Atlanta that was focused on student loan debt, but it was helping basically build a refinance calculation tool. So it was like a website where you enter your specifics and then it can help you project how long it'll take you to pay off your debt. And the first red flag for me was like in my role over marketing when I was interviewing people and asking them to divulge details about their debt, like I couldn't even answer those personally. You know, like I was in charge of gathering from people, how much debt do you have? Is it private? Is it federal? What are the interest rates? What's your current repayment term? I was drawing blanks on all those things. And so I remember like going into the void and pulling it all up on Credit Karma. And just because it's this colossal behemoth, you just sit with it and you're like, I don't know the first step to take. I mean, it, it really felt like trying to drain the ocean with a teaspoon is how I always compare it. So, you know, I didn't take any immediate action because there was no fire under me at that time since I was still in forbearance. So it was still like that dissociation of, 
oh boy, like this thing is really coming for me. It's not here yet. So I'm just going to kind of live like it's not in existence until it does. And then when things did hit the fan, that was, you know, a really big turning point because it involved my co-signers who are my dad and stepmom. And things became really, really real because I felt so overwhelmed and also resentful, you know, at being in that position. And I handled it very poorly, very immaturely. And it caught up with all three of us. And, you know, when the credit drop happened the following summer in 2019, my dad wrote me a very colorful, strongly worded email and was, you know, I mean, it didn't disown me, but it felt like a second close comparison. So I was just really disappointed in myself, but also dismayed at the situation. But that also was a moment where I was like, you know what, F this, like, I'm not going to just sit here and let these people continue to bleed me dry. Like this has to change. You know, people may not agree with it. People may hold, you know, that, oh, college education over everything. But I'm like, I refuse to just sit by and let this system continue to spiral out of control. So those were definitely some of the aha slash I've had it moments that, you know, gave me some footing to take on that journey when the time was right. I really appreciate what you're saying. And that quote, drain the ocean with a teaspoon, feels totally perfect for what you're describing. Some of our friends have kids coming up through the school system and are thinking, in my whole life, I've always said, college is a non-negotiable for my children. And now they're saying, I can't wholeheartedly recommend that kids go to college because so many kids and students will come out with this level of debt that is unsustainable. Like It doesn't make financial sense to do it. And on top of that, can we talk about how and why student loan debt disproportionately affects Black women? Yeah. So that was really like an eye-opening piece. And I mean, it unfortunately wasn't surprising because I feel like we had the short end of almost every stick there is, but it's like just the compounded effects because we're already starting out with lower rates of generational wealth, right? So it's like we go into these prestigious institutions being told and sold on the fact that Yes. See, like you'll be able to write your own ticket. That was certainly it for me. Like going Ivy was a choice rooted in trying to almost not prove a point, but I guess just be a first, but just for that sake, it wasn't like this will directly set me up for XYZ opportunity. Like I felt like such a fish out of water. So I know a lot of other black women going into PWIs, predominantly white institutions have had that same experience. But so it's like we get there and we're under-resourced. So we have our hands out the most to the financial aid office and whatever we don't get in grants and scholarships is coming out, you know, in financial aid. Then also you combine the fact that we don't have these conversations happening as frequently in the household. So mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, auntie, and uncle, like they're doing the best they can with what they have, which usually is not very equitable also compared to, you know, their peers of other races. And so it's like they have every intention of trying to help us get ahead, but they, you know, and not having had that exposure themselves, a lot of times just aren't able to do as effective of a job. So it's like we're under-resourced, under-prepared to take on this burden, don't feel like we have any other way. And then we do get these degrees we're underpaid, you know, there's job discrimination, there's pay equity issues, there's all these different things. And then people love to tell us, oh, well, get your master's. Like they just think that that's a catch-all for being able to break past that barrier. And so many of us fall into that trap thinking, 
that that is the only surefire way to measurably increase their earning potential to pay off that debt. But when that doesn't happen, then they, you know, are sitting there with multiple degrees, you know, like all the prestige and the credentials, but nothing but financial ruin to show for it. And that is a very vicious cycle that I'm seeing is resulting in all types of livelihood compromises, like not being able to afford a home, missing out on marriage prospects, not being able to even start families until either way later or it's too late. I have seen instances of women who come forward and they're like, unfortunately, because of my student loan debt, I had to forego my uh, fertile years. And so by the time I finally got out of debt, I couldn't conceive naturally, you know, and it's just like, what kind of world are we shaping for the next generation of, you know, our daughters and young women um, when it's like basically telling them you must indebt yourself at the cost of your personal freedom. So there's definitely um, a massive cycle and a lot of terrible factors at work here from a lot of bad actors. I really appreciate how you framed that, right? Because I, I think that it's so important to look at student loan debt in the context of everything, right? Both historically, you know, how we got to this place, and in particular, how Black women have been affected by things like redlining, by things like lack of generational wealth, by our, our history in this country, and then sort of how you play that forward, right? Like, what are the trade-offs and what are the problems that come with this that are systemic as well. And so I really think that laying that out on that level allows people to hear, right, not only where we have come from, but where we are going with this and what and to your point, like, what is that future that we want for that next generation? And at the same time, I hear you say all of that. And I know there are still people out there who are like, yeah, and I just don't see it like the people, the same people who had real issues with student loan forgiveness, you know, when Biden came out with that and, you know, who thought that this was unfair. And so when you hear those things, which infuriate me personally, right, how do you respond? Yeah. So I've accepted that that is definitely just one of the less ideal parts that comes with the job. But, you know, I've really used it and channeled it as motivation to create the solutions that will really truly nip this stuff in the bud because coincidentally, just before that was announced, probably a month or two before, we ended up reformulating our approach and pivoting a, a tad where it's like, of course, our, our focus is still helping Black women who, you know, are in this boat and 35 to free, you know, our signature program continuing to grow and scale that. But it's like on the front end doing the preventative work that's really going to go above and beyond to make sure we don't just keep funneling more students into a broken system like that's where the real change is. And, you know, it's just like being able to make a compelling case through designing those materials and updating, you know, our site and our presence and just helping expand the scope for people and also finding creative ways to connect with them. Because one of the things that I've come to discover as a nonprofit professional and, you know, just being so committed to this cause and realizing that for those on the outside of it, it won't always just be a slam dunk of, you know, like, oh man, like I'm fired up about this. And even though it doesn't affect me, I can appreciate that it's caused me to think of new ways to engage with people around it. And so because I double as, you know, like a, a fitness professional as well, I liken it to if you were to sign up to go to a gym and your trainer were to start you out with 
you know, you've never stepped foot in a training setting before. So you don't have particularly high muscle strength. You don't have a lot of endurance. Like you're totally fresh and malleable and need some coaching. If they begin you with, you know, 20 reps with 50 pound weights, you're going to be going to the hospital after five minutes because you are, you know, going to pull something. You won't have the capacity to lift it. And, you know, it's, it can set you up for long-term effects and harm as well. So student loan debt is the same situation. A young person who graduates with, you know, a DTI ratio of 70% or higher in some cases, that is setting them up for long-term financial turmoil. And so, you know, just all the rhetoric that I hear and like seeing people who, you know, bring their nasty two cents to Twitter about it and tell people suck it up. And like you said, it's not fair to people who did pay it off and were responsible. Like it's just so misinformed and comes from like a me, myself and I, every person for their self mindset. And so I'm challenging people like consider that it's not just about you or the person you know who's paid it off and done it the right way in like the most sarcastic air quotes, consider that when a person is struggling to pay off their student loan debt, they then are blocked from being able to bless others because their capacity to become a leader, build a business, create jobs, help anyone is diminished, if not completely eliminated altogether. So, you know, I like to keep from going crazy and just like clapping back and, you know, weighing in and just letting it ruin my day like that. That's how I've been handling it so far. So the sarcasm was noted. I appreciate that. <laughs> what would you say to white women who are listening to this episode? You know, what should they know about student loan debt and like the loan forgiveness proposal? Because I think one of the things you pointed out was stop personalizing it. It's about the systems. Mm -hmm. What else is there? Well, yeah, definitely it's a systemic failure because also it's like, it's supposed to be return on investment a lot of people just walk through life thinking like college is just as much of a staple as it is to have green grass and a blue sky overhead. It's like, this is what we've been used to for 400 years, you know, Harvard being the oldest institution and setting the precedent and then other schools coming about and the student loan system being introduced in the forties during the GI period and all that. So it's like, just, I want people to understand that they have to separate the idea of success with being traditionally educated, because when you insist that a young person can only have value if they go through that one potentially very harmful action, you know, if it results to this level of financial obligation, it just backfires in so many ways. And it's like financial is the most clear, but it's like it can also create wedges in families. I mean, that's definitely one of the things that I and my dad and stepmom experience for a hot minute was, you know, not speaking to each other behind this, you know, and my dad and I have always been super close. So it was just really heartbreaking. And the fact that institutions, it's like once they graduate you out, like they're oftentimes not checking for you, especially if you aren't one of the, you know, traditional success stories that goes on, you know, in my case to like my peers did, you know, goes on to consult and work in very prestigious, high esteemed companies or go to the top grad schools after it's like, it's easy to fall through the cracks in a lot of cases. So yeah, just wanting people to, to recognize that it is a systemic failure. The, the students and the young people are definitely not to be blamed. So like, let's just reserve the judgment and the finger pointing 
you know, because young people are already struggling enough as it is under the weight of this. And in a lot of cases, that regret that comes with it, a lot of people don't need to be told it was a mistake. You know, our prosperettes in our program, like that's one of the things that we make it a point not to do is like drag them through the mud. Like, well, do you realize that you shouldn't have brought all this? Like people get that and what they need is help and they need empathy. They need compassion. They need people to come from a solutions oriented mindset. And then when you, you know, can be on the same page, then together, it's like being able to conquer these wrongs is so much easier. I love that. The focus not only on empathy and sort of moving forward, right, to the solution and not dwelling on the past, but also focusing on the systems, because I think we're hearing similar arguments now about affirmative action, about, you know, so many issues that people try and take to the individual level, right? And often have the privilege to be able to do that because they have not had to deal with this. And their expectations about how they move through life, like you were talking about, are set at these certain levels that are not equitable. So um, I think that's so, so important. And thank you for sharing those thoughts. And I meant to add to, I'm so sorry, I just realized I didn't get around to the piece about Biden speculation. So I've been getting a lot of inside tips from people who are, you know, connected to the Hill involved with lobbying efforts, et cetera. And it's held up in court right now. So there's a very high risk that this all could be undone by the lawsuit coming out of Missouri on behalf of Mohella because they're claiming lost wages or lost revenue because, you know, with them being a private lender and yet somehow being affiliated with this, it would result in those balances being cleared out, which costs them money. So, that has moved forward to a largely Republican dominated court. And as I understand, you know, it could be weeks more of deliberation, but ultimately the whole thing could be blocked. And so, but even if it wasn't, people have asked, you know, I've heard uh, from our advisors who are connected to some of those, you know, like outsider circles where they're like, why do y'all still exist? Isn't the president taking care of it? And it's like, I honestly wish You know, like if someone were to put TPP out of business, it's like hats off to you because at least you're doing something about the situation, but not even close. It's like federal is its own ballgame. It does nothing for, you know, most private loans. And because of this whole very thing of the interest that they stand to gain and make off of it, they're not going to let you out of that easily. Like I refinance my private loans and still won't like can't get left alone by my original lender. It's like the games that they play, they're holding on to like this last $250 that they refuse to apply towards the balance. Like it's this whole thing. So I just want to touch on that really quick before we move on that. Please don't be fooled just because the president has spoken up about it does not inherently mean that he's waved a wand and that student loan debt is a thing of the past. Thank you. I think that's so, so important. Not only the distinction between federal and private loans, but also that, you know, this one thing that happened does not dictate that this is now fixed, right? We are done. And I think people like that, right? They like the quick solution. They like the concept that, yes, like this magic wand sort of has been waved. And I think we see this at a lot of systemic levels in our country that people are like, great, it's done. Now we can, you know, move on to something else. And you're absolutely right. It's not. And so I think people should be very, very aware of that as they think about this whole issue moving forward. 
I want to talk about the Prosperity Project for a little bit too, because when I've gone to your website, there's some amazing press on there. And I think about, you know, you talked about sort of starting this in really mid-2020, and it's grown and you've talked about pivots that you've made and your prosperette. So I would love to hear from you, you know, two things. What are you most proud of that you've accomplished so far? And what was something along the way that was really surprising to you? Yeah, so I would say the biggest accomplishment that I'm most proud of, like we've done so much and just I have to say shout out to my incredible team because this could not have ever gotten so far as a one woman production. I would say getting inducted into Goldman Sachs One Million Black Women Initiative, that was a really big deal because it happened when we were less than a year old, which was spring of 2021. And we did just get renewed for a second commitment within this summer where they upped their grant towards our organization sixfold. So, I mean, that was just truly remarkable work and just speaks to, I think, the perfect mix of talents and strengths and attributes that we have on the team where we've been able to just grow together and also doing it from the confines of, you know, these computer and phone screens, no less. Like there are so many team members of mine who I to this day have not met in person and we've been working together since, the, you know, we got our start in the onset of the pandemic. And it's just like I am in awe all the time at how quickly we were able to mobilize and pull this together and then also just grow and continue to make our mark. What was something that was really surprising to you? Surprising was how is what the journey is like when you're trying to raise money for something. I think it's so easy to get jaded by your own perspective. Cause again, like I am a walking billboard for this whole thing, student debt, black women's equity, financial literacy, everything. And so for me, it's like second nature and it's my world. I do this work 24 seven, but seeing how tough it was initially at the onset to raise as much money as we were hoping for. So while we did, you know, get a lot of early stage I guess you could say seed funding through like GoFundMe at only weeks old before we knew that the appropriate channel was an actual 501c3 bank account, which we then switched over to. It's like we had a bunch of little fish and then a couple big fish, but we were trying to aim really, really high and clear the entire student debt balances of our prosperettes, which would have been $1.7 million. (laughs) And, you know, as you may have been able to tell, like, I'm a dreamer, and I don't think that any goal is too big um, and not worth pursuing. So I was like, yes, let's hold ourselves to this. Like, anything is possible. And once we got better counsel and people who were more experienced with this kind of thing, they were able to help me see, like, you're just not going to go from a couple thousand to almost 2 million in the bank in six months. Like awesome aspiration, but that just is not going to be how it works. So I think it was very surprising just to see that, you know, what it takes to actually nurture and cultivate donor relationships and to attract that capital. Like I totally believe that any successful business caters to the laws of attraction somehow, like no one has to tell you to like your favorite song. It just, it speaks to you for a reason. And so I've tried to get really, really adept at being that quote unquote favorite song for our consistent supporters and for others, you know, who are trying to get, you know, to join in on the cause as well. So it's, there've been many more surprises than that, but I think that was like one of the most notable. I mean, you're already on the 
list of our favorites. So I think this is fantastic. Where does the Prosperity Project go from here? And how can people who are listening support your work? Yes. So very excitingly, we've expanded our scope. I think I touched on it very, very briefly earlier in the conversation, but we now have a full on three eyes framework. So instead of just helping Black women with their student debt through our 35 to free initiative, we've really done a lot to create this metaphor of student debt being like a fire of sorts. So we run with that imagery. And the first eye is interception. So this is basically helping, you know, as I mentioned, young people on the forefront of the issue avoid getting burned, so to speak. So the higher versus higher, which is spelled H-I-R-E, which is an acronym versus H-I-G-H-E-R. That's our way of basically going into high schools and speaking to teenagers to just begin having these preliminary conversations and let them know there is so much out there. And your goal is really to be like an interdependent, financially stable, successful adult. And whatever, you know, means of education that looks like, we want to expose you to the spectrum that there is. We're not, you know, we are pro-education, but we are anti-exploitation. So our thing is helping people avoid predatory debt traps before it's too late through that work. So that's I number one, and that's fireproofing as we call it. So then there's fire extinguishing, which is our second eye of intervention through 35 to free. That's how, you know, we got our start. That's, you know, our, our multifaceted program where we help black women who have come out with student loan debt and have low income and means to help pay it off. You know, we give them or rather they earn retroactive scholarships, which moving forward will be a match component. So we will help them clear up to $10,000 of their student loan debt, depending on how much, you know, they put towards it. So they could come out of the program next year with 20K less, 10K that they paid down, 10K that we put in and combining that with financial guidance, because we realize that without any sort of detailed and structured plan for how they can maximize their earnings once they don't have debt, you know, to take it all from them on the front end, then it could effectively backfire and they end up right back at square one. You know, there's the lottery winner effect that we're trying to avoid there. And then the third eye, which is interference, like necessary disruption, that's our smoke clearing pillar through our corporate speaking engagement arm, which is called prosperity through clarity. And that's where we go into companies, um, to universities, different organizations, and basically are, you know, ambassadors of this work and having conversations just like these debunking myths, helping, you know, shed light on some of the lesser known and commonly misinformed aspects of the student debt crisis and just really engaging with people and helping them tap into their power to help, you know, support the cause ideally financially, but even at a minimum, just being supporters of the work, being vocal about it, sharing it with others who could benefit from it. Um, so we're really, really excited to like bring that whole arm together in 2023 and, and, you know, up our marketing to reflect that. And then of course, with 35 to free doubling our cohort next year to go from 12 to 25 members. It's awesome. So exciting. Awesome. Well, if people want to find you, where can they look? So certainly our website, HTTPS colon slash slash the prosperity. Again, that's P-A-R-I-T-Y project.org. Um, our Instagram, we're at the prosperity project, same spelling. 
Facebook and LinkedIn, you know, just search us up by the name with the A between the parentheses and Twitter. Not really sure what's happening on that front. I've consulted with our PR team of whether or not it's wise for us to keep a presence on there. They advise that we should for now. So while we're still on there, it's Prosperity Proj. And, you know, just being even on our email newsletter is a great way to stay in the loop. A lot of people always reach out asking for updates on the the new application cycle, which will go live in January and all the specifics there. So we announce all of that through our channels, of course, because we are coming up on Giving Tuesday and you're in giving our Give Butter page as well. If you're in a position to make a contribution financially, that goes such a long way. The website to support us there is givebutter, G-I-V-E-B-U-T-T-E-R.com slash the prosperity project. And if you would consider being a recurring donor, you know, that way we can count on you to help us continually keep up with our major demands that meet us, you know, just with scaling our initiatives and expanding and getting prosperity into as many supporters and, and people that we can benefit as possible. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank y'all. This is a wonderful dialogue. Thank you again for hosting me and everyone who's going to be tuning in and listening. Definitely looking forward to connecting with some folks who may come across this, hopefully. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. <laughs>